The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, John chapter 9, verse 4, we begin, it says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it says, I must work the works. But if you have an ESV or an NIV or uh, uh, an ASV, and if you look into the literal Greek, it literally says, we must work the works. I think this is fascinating this morning because if you go back to verse 1, when they came upon this blind man, Jesus stops as they come through the gate, and he looks at this man begging in the corner. And the disciples catch it, come back to Jesus, and immediately the disciples are who do you think sinned that caused this man's blindness? Was it himself or was it his parents? And of course, Jesus responds, no, this, this blindness was not because of his sin or his parents, but in order that the works of God might be on display in him. And so with that ringing in their ears, Jesus now says, we must work the works of him who sent me. In other words, we, of course, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in in tandem together on this. But he's addressing these disciples as he's training. And he goes, we must be about the works of him, God the Father, who sent me, Jesus Christ, to do. And that very statement to those disciples is the very same statement that echoes down through the ages to you and I today. If there's one thing that Christians need to learn today is that when you've accepted Christ as Savior, you're to be about your Father's business. There is a plan, there is a program, there is a way that God helps us to understand that. In fact, those of you who are going to be in our new members class right after church this morning, pay close attention to that. Because as a family and as grace, we want everybody to be involved in ministry. We want everyone to find their place God has provided. And so that's important to understand. So let's look, let's look first of all at this whole concept of work, the work that Jesus came. You see, the disciples who had not yet learned to look at men as Christ looked at them, as people who, who to be loved, they saw this man as a philosophical problem. Their initial response was blindness, pain always has to do with sin, therefore there has to be sin. Okay, who sinned? That's the way they looked at people. And back then, that's the way everybody looked at people. Whenever there was a problem, somebody did something wrong. And that's the way they viewed it. Jesus, to Jesus, the man was not only a man, but more than that, one whom he had compassion on. So instead of entering into a deep discussion, Jesus simply answered briefly the real reason for this man's blindness. Simply so that the works of God might be displayed. And it's in that context that verse 4 takes on a greater meaning. Jesus must be about the work of his Father. As Spurgeon put it, questions are good. There are answers for such questions. Jesus gives them, but there is an eternity to ask and answer questions. What counts now is to work, for the workman's time is limited. And the workers are few, end of quote. So God had sent Jesus here to do a very specific work. 
not only to die on the cross to pay for sins, but to an establish a work that all men would be involved in drawing men and women to Jesus Christ. The conclusion is that you and I should set out with the same determination to do the work of Jesus. Now, all through Jesus' ministry, he is always addressing about how he needs to be about his father's business, whether it's to the disciples or to his parents. In fact, you remember the story when his parents were on their way home and realized Jesus wasn't with them. And they panicked and they went back to the city and they searched and searched and searched, finally finding him in the temple. Luke chapter 2, verse 49, Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Or I must be about my father's business? Think for a moment about the world around us. It's perishing. People are struggling with no solutions. You, you and I have solutions. You and I have been given the direction to provide those solutions through the power of the Holy Spirit. But one great key to Jesus' work ethic was for his incredible love for people. You know, it always boggles my mind when I think about when sin came into the world through Adam and Eve and when sin passed upon all men, for all have sinned, the Bible tells us, that Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit, they could have just wiped the slate clean and started over. Yeah, well, okay, let's try again. But they had such love and compassion for these people that Jesus took on the form of man and came to die as payment for that sin. I, I am reminded so much of the story um, Jim Simbola tells in his book. I believe it was Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He talks about a man who had been living on the streets in New York for almost a year. He absolutely smelled horrific, as you might imagine. No bath for almost a year, the smell of urine on his body. And at one day, he, he stumbled into the church, and he heard the message of salvation. He heard the call of God. And in full repentance, he came running down the aisle, crying out to Jesus. And here's Jim in his perfectly pressed suit, in his white shirt. And this man just fell on him with his whole body. Jim says in his book, he said, the most putrefying, ugly smell he had ever smelled suddenly was the sweetest smell he'd ever smelled. Because it was the change of the heart of Jesus Christ. Folks, that's love. That is compassion. And that's the kind of love we're talking about here. Do we love others? Or do we see them only as problems as the disciples saw the blind beggar? More interested in what caused the blindness instead of how to help him. So let's look now at this special work because it was a special work. Um, it is the specialized nature of the work that's important here. When he said, we must work the works of him who sent me, it was the work of God and only that, that Jesus felt compelled to do while it was still day. There are many people who can say with great enthusiasm, I must work. But there are few who can say, I must work the works of him who sent me. So many people work hard in their vocations and areas of their life. In fact, they may even work hard in churches. Jesus didn't come into the world to simply work hard. He came to work God's work. And it was upon that that he set the course of his life in every activity. So do we apply the same activity 
the dedication to God's work that we do in other areas of our life. Do we even know the work that God has given us to do? And then the other thing he brings about in this verse is how short the time is to get the work done. Christ's words about work also teaches about a limitation of time allotted to work and therefore also about time shortness. Jesus indicated that by saying, while it is day, night is coming when no man can work. If you look and study the whole concept here, there are several passages leading up to this that take place on the very same day. So it's thought that at the time of the healing of this blind beggar, it was almost nightfall. And so his words rang true to the disciples, not only in a spiritual sense, but also in a very physical sense because it was getting dark. Think of the weight that these words have coming from the lips of Jesus. He's the one who knows the end from the beginning. The one who knows exactly how much time is left. And he says, the time is short. Christ is the timeless God. He lived in eternity past. He will live through eternity future. If anyone could have postponed the work, surely Christ could have postponed the work. Yet we see him concerned for the moment. Are we concerned for the moment? Or will we find our Lord taking charge of our moments for us, which has happened to many of us? The night is coming for all of us, and the time to serve the Lord will be over here on earth. So let's concentrate now on this particular miracle. Let's look at the miracle. Last week we we talked about the healing and we talked about the effects of suffering and everything. But let's zero in on the the, uh, miracle, verses 5 through 12. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I I am he. I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made the mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Shalom and wash. And I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. You see, what I believe here is that when Jesus sent him to the pool, the pool wasn't right there. He had to walk some distance. There was a a good long walk to get to where the pool was across the city. And not only that, the guy's blind, okay? So it's going to take him a while to get to this pool. When he washes and he can see, he's coming back and he's getting bombarded with all these questions. I don't believe he's seen Jesus yet. It's safe to say from recorded scripture that there were many more miracles that were performed, but there were only seven that John recorded in Scripture. And John explicitly gives the reason why they were recorded in John 20, verse 31. It says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there were no Scriptures written. There was no New Testament. They had the law. But Jesus' miracles would draw people to him and accept him as the God. 
the Savior of the world. These miracles are special because they teach spiritual truth. And Jesus is the light of the world, and his light cuts through darkness like the beam of a lighthouse. But notice again what he called Jesus in verse 11. He, he said, the man called Jesus made the mud and anointed my eyes. Jesus is more than a man. The fact that he healed the blind man is proof of that. Jesus is also God. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is Jehovah Jireh, Adonai. He is Lord of hosts. He is the Savior. Jesus is all these things, and yet to his glory, he is a man. He's a man. He didn't come with some incredible, hard-to-grasp idea of God in the heavens that man would just be mind-boggled to try to conceive. He took on the form of a man. And in this state of a man, we could identify him. We could understand his message. And what could be more glorifying than that, than to know that the Savior of the universe took on a form that we could identify with? This is the kind of man we meet in John chapter 9. Thus, it is no surprise to find that after his healing, the blind man had thoughts only for Jesus. And to this man, Jesus had become the most important person in existence. He did not know much about him. He only knew that he was healed, and the man called Jesus did it. In fact, he had not yet seen him, as I said, so I don't know what picture he might have had in his mind of this man. But this man is in utter excitement, and he's explaining what Jesus has done to him. And that should be the experience of all of us when we find Christ. This man was walking through the town. People were asking him questions. He's sharing what's happened. I can see, I can see, I can see. All of us who accept Christ ought to have that same desire and fervor that same focus of wanting to tell the world how we've changed and what's different about us. But I want you to notice the humble nature of this miracle, the humble miracle. The nature of this healing is very humble because the story tells us that Jesus spit on the dirt. He made clay from the dust and from saliva, and he had pushed it into the eyes of this man. Does that offend you? Does that seem gross? Does it seem foolish? Does it seem repulsive? In one sense, it probably should. For the gospel through which God gives spiritual sight is all these things to the unconverted. Many turn away from the gospel because they think it's barbaric and crude. It's offensive to some minds. But offensive or not, it is by these means that this man gained his sight. Clay? Yes, but clay made by Jesus. Spit? Yes, but the saliva from Jesus, yes. All of this may sound foolish to the natural man. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And trust me, it was foolishness to the Pharisees. This was foolishness to everybody around. But yet, the healed man holds truth. 
he holds true. <clears throat> Look at verse 13 and 17. They brought the Pharisees to the man who had formed, or they, they brought, the, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. I think by now he's kind of getting frustrated with repeating the story over and over and over to the same people. So he says, he, he washed and I received my sight. And then he said to them, he put the mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. I mean, come on, guys. Look at me. I see. Look what's going on here. Now, think for a moment about someone who has just been saved and ask yourself two questions. One, from whom is the new Christian likely to receive the most encouragement? And secondly, from whom is the new Christian likely to receive the most discouragement? Most of us would agree that the answer to the first question would be those who led him to the Lord and, and helped him. And I'm not sure where we would come up with all the answers for who the ones for discouragement would be. It's probably those who are outwardly religious but have no transforming love of Jesus Christ in their hearts. So when they bring this man to the Pharisees, instead of rejoicing in the new sight, they begin to criticize the healing was done on a Sabbath, which was a no-no. And they argue that how could a sinner perform these? They still see Jesus Christ as a man. They can't get off that rock. So they begin to question him. And I can almost see the healed man getting a little stiffer. You've heard it already. He put mud in my eyes, I washed and I see. Simple, to the point, and very clear. They discuss it, and then they ask the man, well, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And one last time, hoping to get evidence against Jesus, the man gives his testimony again. He's a prophet. Now, I want you to stay with me here, because I want you to see the wonderful progression that's taking place in this healed man. And here is why God often permits opposition to the new Christian's testimony. This is why sometimes God allows opposition, because opposition drives us deep. Opposition causes us to really investigate what we believe. And here's what we find out. First, in his first testimony, the man called Jesus the man or the, the blind man called him, the man called Jesus. He made mud, he healed him. By the time we come to this point in the story, he calls Jesus a prophet. That is one who speaks and acts for God, verse 17. But now he's getting bolder. And he puts forth the idea that maybe, maybe the Pharisees want to be his disciples. And listen to how he puts it in verses 25 through 27. He answered, Look, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was blind and now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you will not listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciple? You hear how the man's getting on the offensive now? You know, you keep asking me these questions. You must want to know Jesus too. Is that why you keep asking him? Because I've said it over and over and over again. So he's really, really pushing it now. Now he becomes bolder and more confident as we hear him say in verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, just feel the passion of this man. Guys, look at me. Look at me. You guys know me as the guy who stumbled around all his life. Look at my knees, the scars on my legs, perhaps. Look at the, my knuckles and all the skins from hitting, bumping into things. Look at my head. I couldn't see anything. Look at me. Do you think just a man did this? Do you think just some guy came and said, oh, be healed? He has to be God. Does the world see Christ in you? Blind man is easy to see. He's no longer walking in the wall. You can look at him and see there's a difference. But I suggest to you, when Almighty God changes the heart of a person, the world sees it too. And one of the key points of this story is that all of us look in our own lives and say, as I walk in, my, in the marketplace, in my business, at my home, in my neighborhood, do people know I'm different? Do people know I am healed? spiritually do they want to hear my message do they want to know where i'm coming from and he said in verse 33 look <laughs> paraphrasing if he's not god i'm not healed now he's pushed to a point and here's what's very critical for us to understand here and i want you to go to verse 35 through 38 jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, notice this, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Here's where I think we get an indication that this is the first time he's seen Jesus. Because he doesn't really know who he is. And so the, the man Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who speaks to you. And notice, and he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. You realize what's just happened here? He was healed physically. He was just healed spiritually. He was healed physically. Life had taken on a whole new meaning. He was excited. He was testifying. He's physically healed. But now Jesus has to come back to him and confront him with the most important question on the face of the earth. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he believed and he fell down and worshipped. Contrast. The Pharisees start from the view that Jesus is not from God. Verse 16, Jesus questions the miracle in verse 18, calls Jesus a sinner in verse 24, acknowledges their ignorance, verse 29, and at the last are by Jesus pronounced both blind and sinful in verse 41. What a contrast. 
opposition led the blind man into a new understanding, and this should be the effect of opposition on all of us. Take heed and be strong in your faith, even when you're challenged. But let's make sure we understand again what's taking place here. The key question more than anything is, do you, you can believe the healer, and this is believing that Jesus healed him, but the key question that changes everything is, do you believe in the Son of Man? He knew he was a man called Jesus, verse 11. He had come to see he was a prophet, in verse 14. Later, he begins to see Jesus from God, as he said in verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But nevertheless, the man who had been born blind still did not know all that Jesus intended him to know. So Jesus came with a question that would bring him to the place where he could fall down and worship him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? This question Jesus used to make salvation clear is the very same question that's answered today, 2,000 years later. Do you believe in the Son of Man? There's no more important question under heaven. Jesus said in John 14, verse 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto me except by him. It's because of Jesus that he is able to save sinners. There are many people in the healing stage right now. They know, they enjoy, they're in a positive place, but yet have given their life to Jesus Christ. And I think it's so fascinating that from the moment he he is healed, there is all this time that takes place from ridicule to encouragement to testimony, everything until he comes to the point where Jesus comes back and says, but do you believe in the Son of Man? That moment, folks, is when spiritual healing takes place. Acts 4, verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Even with the physical healing, this man experienced, and the fact that he was indebted to this healer, he had to know and accept that Jesus was God and that he paid the price for his sins. Physical healing was not enough. And in Christianity, salvation is something achieved only by Jesus. Hence, Jesus is at the center of Christianity. This question that Jesus asked is also critical because of the fact that no other experience eliminates the need to answer it. Not even obedience to his obedience to go to the pool and wash. He had to accept Jesus by answering the question, yes, I believe. And he fell down and worshipped him. That is true worship. When the heart surrenders to Christ and gives everything to Him. No religious experiences or practices can save. Only by answering the question, do you believe in the Son of Man, can you have eternal life? So the question
question has to be made very clear this morning. Do you believe? Have you placed all your faith in this Jesus? Not just to meet your needs, not just to have a good life and be good and do all good things and come to church. No, that's worthless. Do you believe that Jesus Christ paid the price of your sins? When you accept that truth and your heart truly worships, you are turned from God. What have you come to Jesus? Father, we thank you this morning for your unfailing grace. This story cuts through us like a knife. Because in one sense, it's the story of a great healing, wonderful physical need being met, praise, adoration, ecstatic, wow. But the true, true miracle doesn't happen to the end when Jesus comes to him and asks him, do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe that he went to that cross and died for you? Do you believe that there is no other way to get to heaven except through Jesus Christ? That is the true question. If you're here this morning and if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that the Spirit of God would overwhelm you with His presence. That you would know that no matter what you're experiencing, no matter how horrible life may be, Jesus is greater than all of it. And His saving grace will change your life pray, God, that you would work in the hearts of all this morning, and maybe just for Christians to be more focused in their worship, more dedicated in their lives, to be about their Father's business. The days are short. We don't know how much time we have left, individually and collectively. But we must do the work of Him who sent us. 